Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. Aubrey Morris, who appears in this week's episode, Dance of the Dead, mm-hmm. would, a few years after this, show up in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, playing a character who inspired your nickname, buddy. Oh, geez. What's his name? Mr. Deltoid. Oh, right. AJ Deltoid? PJ Deltoid? What is it? <laughs> it's something like uh, that. It's, I, you've outed me already as a, uh, a thinly prepared dilettante. I, I don't remember Mr. Deltoid's first name. I was hoping we'd get around to talk to Aubrey Morris, uh, one of the two outstanding guest stars with the last name of Morris in this episode, and uh, he always gives a spin. He does. I, I have it from two sources, from both The Official Prisoner Companion by Matthew White and Jafar Ali, and from, I think it's Alex Cox's book, that this role, played by the delightful Mary Morris, this episode's number two, was written for one Trevor Howard. Yes. Uh, Known to geeks around the land as first elder in Superman the movie in a very fetching tinfoil gown. Uh, One of the first people to uh, disabuse Jor-El of his notions. Wow. Oh, man. I forgot all about that. I always, because I mean, I I love Donner Superman, of of course, um, but I always think of him in uh, The Third Man as Major Calloway, one of my favorite movies. Calloway, not Callahan. I'm English, not Irish. I always think of him as one of the faces up there saying, guilty. I think he might be the last person to say, guilty, and then disappear. Right. When when Zod and his uh, cohorts are in their, their little hula hoops of confinement. Mm-hmm. Do you know the jurors' names, Glenn? I don't. They're first elder, second elder, third elder. Isn't uh, that? They're just elders. Okay. Well, if they had names, you would know them. What, what are uh, Zod's to the, uh, the Richard Kyle and um, the actor who played Jaws? During the same period in yeah. The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker yeah. and, the, and The Lady. Who, what are their names? Nan and Ursa, respectively. Right, right. Well, you know, Glenn. Yes, Chris. An interviewer once asked Richard Lester how much of Superman two he had reshot after Richard Donner was fired by the Salkins or, or quit. Lester, who had, of course, done A Hard Day's Night and would go on to do Superman two and three, inserting a lot of uh, slapsticky stuff that was not a part of of Donner's vision. When he was asked this question, Glenn, Lester appeared to go into sort of trance. His eyes rolled back in his head, and he said simply, 
1966, Patrick Baguin, star of the long-running TV spy series there Danger is. Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by their number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly, I am now the proud owner of a lava lamp glen of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Well, the alarming realization that I'm facing is that eight episodes in, we we are closing in on the halfway point. We are perilously near the midpoint of our our journey, Glenn. I mean, we're going to have some other episodes. We're going to stretch this this concept out, but it seems premature for us to have to just to be eight seventeenths done. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, if you think about it, we are only getting to the third of what McGowan considered the core episodes. We've, we've been uh, kind of macheting through a bunch of filler episodes, uh, good as they are, and or not so good as they are, as, say, for example, The General. Sure, sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we are, we are, and the other thing that's confusing about this is that, of course, this episode may have been filmed fourth. It may have been slotted to be the second episode. Everything in it, including reams of dialogue and, and certainly the number six's attitude suggests it should come second. Right. But it was pushed to be eighth, and I've always maintained it should come second, but now I'm thinking it might work better if it directly follows Many Happy Returns because, as we talked about last week, if Chimes of Big Ben is the village saying to six, escape is impossible, and Many Happy Returns is the village saying to six, escape is pointless, this episode is simply kind of driving that point home. Um, because if you think about it, he's just gone back to London. He shared with his superiors knowledge of the village, which implicitly informs us that the village has never tried this tactic before of letting someone escape. Because if they're on the up and up, if his superiors are on the up and up, and you know who knows if they are, they'd know about the village already. But as it is, they now know the general location of the village. And then if uh, at the end of this episode or subsequent to this episode, they find his body after he has gone back to the village, that kind of puts a period on the end of the sentence, theoretically. It could also just intensify their search, right? I mean, like, if if he goes away, comes back and says, there's this village, and then he goes away again, and then he washes up dead, I don't necessarily think they're going to be like, that's that. Bob's your uncle, right? That's I think they right. might just intensify the search. But... Anyway, I think uh, I, I think so much in this episode argues that it should come very, very early, that having it come this late in the broadcast order really uh, fu- fucks things up. Yeah. I want to see the, the sort of uh, photo negative series about, say, I don't know, Olivia Coleman or somebody who's like a middle senior level MI6 official who just will not let up about the disappearance of John Drake. And her superiors are like, let it go. You're crazy. You're obsessed. Mm-hmm. But she won't let it go. She wants to know what happened to, to John Drake. I like that. I, I, I like that better than the, uh, the Prisoner miniseries that came many, many, many years later. <laughs> yes, in 2009. But once again, we are guilty of rudeness. We need to welcome our listeners, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Welcome, friends, to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we... All right, your, your enthusiasm has all dissipated. I, I knew I couldn't keep you amused forever. No, 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 that's, I'm, that's I'm here. I, I just, I'm yeah, just, this okay. is what you're, what you're hearing is bated breath. This breath, bated. 
Yeah. Okay. It sounds like total, total silence captured in 24 bits, whatever, whatever, but it's good. It makes me feel like we're a team, like we're in this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and uh-huh. we push it like a do-gooder with a clipboard on the sidewalk who wants to know if you have a minute to talk about the environment. Cool. Cool. Got it. Sure. We, we file it mm-hmm. like a missing persons report for John Drake. Oh, see? Topical. Finger on the mm-hmm. pulse, Chris. Finger on the mm-hmm. pulse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Five out of six. We stamp it like the star of Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Okay, sure. <laughs> sure. I, we got a lot yeah, of Trevor that, Terrence that, that stamp things. Uh, That's yep, fine. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, stamps have fallen out of circulation as as uh, hard copies in general have sure. uh, receded. So Anyway, six out of six. We index it like... Like an index, Glenn. We index it like a trigger finger. <laughs> okay. It's always, last it always week gets, it's always rough. It's always rough right in the middle here. Four out of six. I believe in you. We brief it like Sergeant Phil Esterhouse on Hill Street Blues. Sure. Oh, that's a good one. Six out of six. Let's be careful out there, Glenn. Yeah. We debrief it like a bikini wax. Not sure. Wow. Not sure. Uh, uh, wow. I wouldn't. Wow. Your brain, man. Your brain. Um, uh, three out of six there. We number it like the engine of a hand-built Lotus 7. Okay, good. That's excellent. That's six out of six. And the look on your face as you said that, the pride that was evident <laughs> in your demeanor, uh, I, I'm going to give it a seven out of six. I can't do that, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> we're, we're at eight seventeenths. It's, it's, it's the all fractions episode of Degree <laughs> Absolute. We're going to talk McGoohans. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our yeah, inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree wayward. It is not of a degree inconstant. It is not of a degree changeable. What is it, Glenn? It's a degree absolute. If you say so. You've reached a degree absolute HQ. Chris and Glenn are unavailable to take your call now. If you're contacting us with a correction about something we got wrong, thank you. If you are calling to point out in a prior correction that we compounded the initial error and just made it worse, please leave your correction to our correction. Thank you. Good Klimek once asserted hence thusly, Laertes was the on-sole survivor of the bar's most goodly known and most beloved of all his works. This fault, anathema to mine own ears, mine fingers took their flight across mine phone, to transmit missive hence, and to Klimek brave, that Hamlet's friend Horatio, most noble and wettest rag, the lone Dane left upon the stage at play's end. This missive thus acknowledged, I set myself a job well done and bid it no more thought. Imagine what dismay whence, in admission of yon erroneous utterance, good Klimek, he most certainly some height relation to the cavil, should again, through a sentence structured more by Escher than Wright, assert identical mistakenness that Horatio should be dead and Laertes alive, and hence compounding upon this error the attempt at claim upon mine luncheon funds. Must I ask if good Klimek bites his thumb at me? Hence I shall not forsake my $2.10 for my Silesianum A lunch, but rather say, whilst he may be a debriefer on par with Zack Snyder, good Klimek would doth well remember that Horatio survives the Danish play from Act 1, Scene 1, through the curtain fall of Act 5. He hence the lone survivor can thusly explain to Fortinbras why his newly claimed throne room more closely resembles Resident Evil than Super Mario Bros. 3. Unless that scene is cut for time, for the play is long and full of stuff you can cut for time. Be seeing you. Okay, so yes, I did, uh, in attempting to retract my initial erroneous claim that Horatio dies in Hamlet, then 
mess up again and say that Laertes survives. It was not a gaff partial. It was a, a gaff absolute. And uh, thank goodness Patrick Flynn from the, the original cast is there to make things right when we screw up here on a degree absolute. Uh, uh, you know, Shakespeare may be more powerful than the original Klingon, but uh, all I can say is that it's easy to confuse the names of characters in classic Mel Gibson revenge tragedies. Uh, Patrick himself couldn't remember on a recent film spotting trivia night which actor was Riggs and which one was Murtaugh. So it can happen to, to anyone, even the most learned and, and erudite uh, among us, which evidently is not me. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Moving on. Dance of the Dead. You're waiting for someone, Mr. Tuxedo? Or expecting someone? Mr. Peter Pan? So it seems. With his shadow? So we begin. Let us begin. I'm looking forward to your synopsis of this episode because uh, just remembering that you thought that Arrival was story light, that it was all world building, and this episode... I love it. Made it very clear. I'm I'm more here with the series for the vibe than for the narrative. But this one drifts. It drifts. It drifts. It it's a kinda, dreamy party, Glenn. It really flubs the dismount where the story doesn't so much end as dissolve like it's cotton candy in the hands of a raccoon uh, and you're a puddle because it just sort of goes away. However, I still love this episode. I wouldn't place it as high as I did when I watched it before, um, the many times I watched it before, only because the plot doesn't really cohere. But if it's an indication of something, it is telegraphing to uh, viewers that this series is going to get awfully abstruse, buckle in. And I think I rate it so highly on the performances of Mary Morris and Aubrey Morris and Patrick McGowan and their very particular line readings. And let's talk, you and I, about Mary Morris, who plays number two in this episode. Mary Lillian Agnes motherfucking Morris, ladies and gentlemen, a giant of the London stage. She trained at RADA. Of course she did. You can tell. Uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. She played queens and queens and queens and queens for days. Of course she did. Uh-huh. Uh, she's just regal as shit, and she showed up on Doctor you're, Who. You're not talking about Patrick Cargill. Again, I'm not now, talking about Doctor Cargill. Okay, because this is not one of the episodes that, that he's on. I'm talking about Miss Mary. Uh, right, she showed up right, on Doctor right. Who during the Peter Davison era. I wanted the previous number two, um, played by Georgie C., my gal Georgie C. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be her gay best friend. I'd stand there in, during the shopping montage uh, as she comes out of the dressing room and spins in the three-way mirror, and I'd be there shaking my head until she yeah. finds the hippest outfit possible, which, let's face it, was the one she was wearing in that damn episode, and then I'd <laughs> nod. But I kind of want Mary Morris to be my mom, um, hmm. and I, I need to unpack that. I, I realize that. There, yeah. there is a surface resemblance. They had the same haircut, the same kind of tiny frame. They can smother me with whiteness, <laughs> although it's... in. Mary Morse's form, it takes the form of a, a ball. She is 52 years young here, a thing I note but do not dwell on because uh, she is a year younger than I am at this particular juncture. As you said, the, the role was evidently written for a man, uh, for actor Trevor Howard. And from the jump right out of the gate, she stakes her claim on this role because during the Q&A, she gives a slightly different spin on that would-be telling than any number two previously. Every other number two has said, that would be telling. And she says, 
That would be telling. It doesn't change the meaning, but it kind of changes the feel of it. Uh, yeah. And then she says, we want information. Information. And you're waiting for the third, because there's always a third information. There's always a build. There's always an arc. And you're also waiting for it because it doesn't make any logical sense. Why right. would you repeat the word information three times? It doesn't make any sense. And also because the rule of twos is that the rule of twos <laughs> adhere to the rule of threes. Glenn. It's true. I think, if you go back and listen, though, the second time she says information is a clip of the first time she says information. We want information. Information. So not only did she not say it three times, she said it only once. And I can, I know, I know exactly why. She was like, three times, dear boy, whatever, four. Why would I say that three times? I'm saying it the one time, and you can do yep. whatever you wish with it. Her delivery of that Q&A is what passes for naturalism on this show. Um, hmm. and, it, and it gives a preview of her affect throughout. She is amused by Six. She's playful with him. But not in a in a erotic or sexual or, or any kind of way. She's completely in control, and she knows it, and she never loses that control. Right. Well, it's natural for us to be more drawn to people who don't seem to wear their stress heavily. And she is very much in the vein of Leo McKern's number two, where mm-hmm. she doesn't seem too worn down by this job, even on the... In the scenes where she's presumably speaking to number one, she's kind of rolling her eyes even as, as she's, she's talking to this person like, oh, the boss is breathing down my neck. There's none of the Colin Gordon fear or strain in her. She seems to, to sort of understand that she's here by chance for as long as she's here. And, you know, tonight's for dancing. There's, there's no point in uh, suffering through every every second. You gotta you gotta take the pleasure, the perks where you where you can in your psychological torturer gig. So she's gonna do that. She's got this thin-lipped reptilian, toothless smile on her face, twenty-four-seven. It is a knowing smile. It is a smile of control, and she doesn't. Even our beloved Leo McKern. You're right. He he was hard to rattle, but he could get rattled. He would snap at the butler. He would become exasperated. Yeah. Um, that's not her. She doesn't get exasperated. No. She just knows her shit. And and she doesn't even snap at an underling who uh, steps above, tries to step above his station. Yeah, at Duncan McRae, uh, apparently a Scottish actor who plays the, I can't remember what his number is, but he's the, the white lab coat guy who's responsible for the electrodes stuck to number six's forehead. Yeah, we're going to call mm-hmm. him, uh, his number is 40, so we're going to call him Dr. 40. Uh, All right. He, he looks like Sam the Eagle. He is a tall drink of water with cheekbones you could cut Manchego on. Like that guy, he is gaunt. So this is what happens at the beginning. A team of lab techs wire up a drugged number two in his bed under the orders of number 40. Uh, this is an extreme procedure for which he hasn't gotten permission from number two, which does not seem the smartest career move in the village, but he does it anyway. No, in A, B, and C, it, it seemed number two was stretching his authority in ordering number 14 to subject number six to the wonder drug mm-hmm. treatment. Um, and he was a number two. He was a number two. This guy is 38 ranks below <laughs> that. Yep. He's freelancing hard. He really is. And it's yet another reason. We should take a whiteboard and just put all the, the reasons this belongs later in the series in a parking lot and just say, over here, this is reason number one of many that uh, this it doesn't make any sense for this particular episode to come. Um, as late as it does. Um, 
so six wakes with a start and gets a call from someone uh, Forty has drugged and is feeding lines to. It turns out to be his old colleague, Roland Walter Dutton. Um, (laughs) Dutton tells him to tell him everything he knows because of a security leak involving the two of them, Arthur, mysterious, and the Colonel, presumably the Colonel we met in the previous episode, because isn't this episode written by the same guy who wrote that episode? Yeah, this is pretty much the old gang. This is Anthony Skeen, who wrote A, B, and C and Many Happy Returns. The director is Don Chafee. This is the last of the four episodes he's going to direct Contain Your Shock, but he and McGowan had a, a falling out. Uh-huh. But yeah, this is this was like the A-team. These are all, all people who were involved from the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. So the colonel crosses over from that episode to this, as does the black cat, which we'll meet. And, uh, it's like he's doing a, a run on a superhero comic, and he just puts his favorite characters in in the background. Yep. Uh, so Six resists this treatment, and number two arrives and calls it off. Um, even though Forty is insisting it will work, two says, and again, uh, if we hadn't heard number two say exactly this many, many times already, it would seem surprising, but two says that... You can't talk it out of this man. He's not like the others. I would have made him talk. Every man has his breaking point. I don't want him broken. He must be one. Perfect. He's beautiful. He looks like Linda Evangelista. Uh, He's a special snowflake. Um, You'd think 40 would get slapped down harder here, maybe at least get kicked down to a 47 or 48, but nope. There's a really nice moment there when when Mary Morris explains that, where uh, Six's old colleague, Dutton, Dutton from Rock, Dutton, who was uh, was so good in Alien Three, wearing mm-hmm. those glasses, and uh, yep. that's that's the guy, right? Same same person. Same, same wear, exact yeah. guy. Of course it is. Roland Walter Dutton. When he he's drugged, he is uh, on the phone with Six, who he's woken up from his electrode uh, to the forehead, driven fever dream, and said, "Hey, the committee, I think, yep. says we gotta we gotta give it up. We gotta spill the beans. We gotta spill the tea. So you may as well just do it to me now." Which seems like a Given the the elaborate schemes that we have seen the village resort to previously, this one seems, you know, I mean, sometimes simple is better, but this seems almost lazy. Mm-hmm. Drug the guy, pump some electrodes into his brain, yep. <laughs> and just call him up in the middle of the night and see if he'll, he'll give it up. But um, apparently during this questioning, Dutton is under the influence of something too, because uh, number 40, Dr. 40, mm-hmm. is feeding him dialogue, which he is then repeating. And something about this exchange exhausts Dutton, and he is being led away, unable even to to walk under his own power. And we see a shot of that in the background as Mary Morris's two is in the foreground saying, But this man has a future with us. You see this this broken man being limped out of frame while she's saying this man has a future with us, which I, I thought was nice. Good job, Don Chafee. Good job, Don Chafee. It will become explicit in a later scene where she will come out and say he's expendable and he's useless and, you know, yeah. go do what you need to do. It does seem like this technique is used often in the village and it also breaks people. And so number 40 is going in under the assumption that he can do this to six and it will not um, it will not screw him up. He's aware that it's dangerous, but he, you know, this is the science can be twisted sort of theme of this show. Six awakes, and the next morning, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, he knows that number two is observing him in a kind of a jaunty way. He acknowledges her. Um, She talks to someone we're meant to think is number one, as you mentioned, Chris, but it clearly isn't. You know why? Hmm. It's the wrong phone. She's speaking into the green phone, not not the big old red phone. 
Right. She no. has, and it's a, a a phone of only modest curvature. Exactly. It's it's not the almost Geiger esque, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the engorged red phone of. Okay. Uh, down now. Temptation. We will see her practice lax phone protocol, phone choice protocols in a, in a subsequent scene. She, her phone choices are all higgledy piggledy, but whatever. Uh, Six meets a maid uh, and gets invited to the village's carnival and dance. Uh, he goes out and for a walk. This, this is another attractive young lady who he is angry, is yeah. in his home cleaning up. Yep. She Even tries she... to engage him. She tries to talk to him, and he is not having it. He says, the maids come and they go. Yep. Yep, and she's in a fancy dress. Uh, yeah, gown. she she wants him to compliment her on her dress, and she something like, "How do I look?" And he says, "You look different." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, six never changed. He doesn't. Uh, so <laughs> we got our wish. He meets number two at the piazza. They have some back and forth about the carnival and how the village is democratic in some ways, which was clearly established. Yeah, which uh, the village has so many events. There are so many competitions and celebrations, and it reminds me of this this job I used to have, this white-collar corporate job where I was assigned to the the team-building committee, Uh and we we had to organize these retreats and activities that no one wanted to do. No, of course not. They were were awful. They were were just horrible, and, like, the, the demographics of our work group was such that finding like ostensibly kind of social fun thing that everyone would want to participate in was just not possible. No, sure. It no, was it was awful. awful. And this is what I respond to about the village, right? It's it's not just that you're confined. It's that you're confined with endless parades <laughs> and uh polka bands doing their pointless promenade in a fucking circle every day and yep. there's always the crafts competition or carnival or an election Something is always happening. If you just wanted to just lay on the beach at a distance from everything that Rover would permit, you mm-hmm. you couldn't. Somebody would uh, be like, "Hey, have you have you entered the talent show?" Or it, yeah, nightmare. Yeah, it's the village equivalent of like you're at work and somebody says it's Karen's birthday. Karen from finance, you have to sign her card. Oh, and there's gonna be cake in the break room. And yep. like, I don't know Karen. I don't. Speak yeah, because don't you want a slice of cake at two thirty p.m. on a Tuesday? <sighs> yeah. This conversation with two includes a lot of stuff he should already know about the village. Uh, Put that in the parking lot. Uh, She walks him over to this set of blonde triplets and basically offers them to him, like, uh, because they're pretty and available. Uh, Like, he's supposed to just (laughs) thump them like there's so many cassava melons in the produce aisle. Like, it's like, here you go, procurer. I was thinking of Colin Firth in Shakespeare Love saying, is she fertile? <laughs> she will breed. <laughs> she will breed. He instead approaches number 240, played by Norma West, uh, and is despite of or because of number two's disapproval, we get a brief exchange where he acts like a human being to a woman, where he almost apologizes for his curt behavior by saying, don't mind me. Don't go. I must. There's a reason. Reason? Number two wants you to go. Or does she? Am I playing her game or yours? Not mine. Don't mind me. Go if you like. How long have you been here? Questions are a burden to others. Answers are prison for oneself. What did you do to have yourself brought here? 
Questions are a burden. And answers a prison for once. It's a moment, but it passes because yeah. um, she leaves, she tries to follow. And Rover delays him. And you can, you know, there are certain shots in here where if you are watching uh, on good quality HD, you can kind of see the distension where the wire is pulling Rover. Right, um, right. He tries to enter the town hall, but gets shocked. This is a thing he should have known by now. Yeah. Parking lot. And this hippie gardener, like this is really the only appearance of the counterculture uh, until we get to the final episode with uh, uh, number 48, you know. Uh, the bones is yours. They came from you, my daddy. That guy. Uh, but this this is the first kind of hippie we actually see in the village. He warns him about, you know, still yet another thing he should know already. This show is going to break your brain if you let it. He should know that the town hall security system is electronic piggy bank based and that he cannot right. overcome it. Uh-huh. But, uh, but uh, he doesn't. And we find out that number 240 is, of course, his official observer which I yeah. don't think is necessarily a dynamic observer that we come back to again. Nope. And he asks if everyone has their own observer. And he doesn't get an answer. She's, she's very close to the beauticians who work on Flapjack Charlie. Yeah, that's true. In, in number. And the, the guy in the, the general, like the stripy-shirted uh-huh. goon who escorts him back from the beach in the mini-mook is also a, a 240-something. This is another sort of village protocol that is present for exactly one episode, uh-huh. like so many pieces of seemingly critical technology that yep. were introduced to, mm-hmm. but I don't think ever comes back. I also don't understand what 240 Little Bo Peep, what, what her actual duties as Six's Observer are, because there's a scene later on where she's just in the control room clicking around to different cameras, and, and she calls number two in a panic saying, I can't find number six. And like, well... You know, maybe if you were fucking following him, but presumably that's your job is his tail not to be here in the control room and to to click through to see if one of the six cameras happens to have caught him in any any given moment. It's it's strange. A, A, Chris, the name of her job is observer, not tail. So she just observes. That's 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 the that's the job description. When when he happens to enter her eye line, she keeps her eyes open. And two, it's a completely superfluous job because as soon as she reports that to number two, number two is like, eh, don't worry about it. I'll turn up. (laughs) So what am I doing here? (laughs) Yeah. What what is my role precisely? All right. So a little bit later on, he takes in the black cat that's been tooling around the village to the um, really annoyed and annoying consternation of his maid who remonstrates him in this very pouty way that I, I keep hearing in my head. You're not allowed animals. It's yeah. a rule. Just that way she says it is just uh-huh. nails on a chalkboard. You, you know what I think of cat people generally? Okay, all right. Letters. We get letters. We get letters. I think they're like number six day. Okay. in terms of warmth, approachability, uh-huh. personable qualities. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Six is a cat person. Yeah. 100%. Okay, all right. I don't disagree, but uh, but I th- I think he could. No, you're right. He's a cat person. Um, <laughs> it found me. <laughs> he says, uh, "When do they bring in the potatoes and the whatever?" He, he says, uh, "And the aspirants and the aspirants, the potatoes and the aspirants." <laughs> Again, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> um, he says, uh, "Do they do it at night when everyone's asleep?" Because he's never seen a night parking lot because oh my god sure. how many nights have we seen him just tooling right. around and walking around uh he just sleeps uh we have seen him out and about repeatedly again. right and i mean i i think regardless of where this episode comes in the order we we could take that as very good evidence that that he is being 
drugged and you know and or messed with via the the pulsator <laughs> above his bed he he says i've never seen a night i just sleep uh-huh. which um i uh during a a long bout of of insomnia i had ambien prescribed once and i'm never touching that shit again man because it did not work for me i've heard from people who've had good results with it but I would take one, it would do nothing, I'd take two, and then I would just lose five hours of time, but I would wake up feeling hungover and not at all rested. Yeah. And that's what I thought about when he said, I've never seen a night, I just sleep. When the, the hours just fall off the clock, but you don't feel any more at peace or restored. It's an awful, awful feeling. So I, I, I think he is being uh, either chemically and or via the effects of the pulsator, just fucked with nightly. No, that is clearly the intent here, but... <laughs> It shouldn't happen this late. He should know that that, yeah. that they do that kind of stuff to him because he's seen the pulse rate. Anyway. Um, right, but he also, he asks uh, Dutton. Uh-huh. <laughs> I keep wanting to call him Roland. We find out that Roland is his first name or middle name, and I don't know. I think Roland is a funny name for uh-huh. no reason. But he asks, he asks Dutton how long Dutton has been there, and he says it's a you know, few months, hard to say, a few years, which, yeah. You know, sure. when you're confined like that and you're you're deliberately withheld any contact with the outside world, we've established that they'll fuck with your calendar. Uh-huh. This happened in, in Schizoid Man when it was February 10th or whatever it was for a lot of nights. Uh-huh. Again, I, I hate the frequency with which I am returning to this. I hesitate to even call it an argument, but all of this sloppy, lazy, half-assed, out-of-sequence storytelling does contribute to the overall surreal effect of this show that I think does make it more haunting, more memorable, whether the creators are due credit for that or not. I think a lot of it just happened because they failed to make critical decisions about their narrative. I think that's that's part of why the show has had such a long afterlife. I think that becomes increasingly true as the series goes on. I think here we are still existing in that kind of uh, liminal state where uh-huh. where you could you could read this as a straight ahead spy story, and it starts to get feathery edge. And this is, I'd argue, the pivot point. It was supposed to kind of come earlier, um, but maybe now, maybe there, it's it's serving a real sort of meta function by coming in the middle point at the midpoint, almost at the midpoint, because it is the one where things start to go nightmarish and absurd in the last act. And speaking of things that don't connect, number two is going into a room to report ostensibly to number one, though no other number two has gone into that room and that whole idea, I have to go into this room to make my report, that also goes away after this episode. Before doing so, she assures Dr. Forty that she won't report on him, despite his insubordination, and that she will get a directive from number one or whomever she is talking to about Dutton, yeah. who's being difficult. Six decides he will not drink his obviously drugged tea and tries to stay up past the 10.30 curfew. <laughs> Boy, the village is a sleepy, yeah. sleepy place. Yeah. And uh, he, he starts pacing, he tries to go outside, and he can't, which again... I think is not a thing that we have seen again in other episodes. I think he can just climb out and mm-hmm. he can go out anytime he wants. But no jazzy crime music in this episode that I can That's recall. True. Even though he does have a nocturnal walkabout. He does have a nocturnal walkabout uh, after he realizes that they hypnotize people at night with the flickering light of doom. Mm-hmm. He climbs out the window, tries to escape uh, a thing he should know not to do by now, he, especially doing it in the way um, that he's doing it, which is to run along the beach. Number two, summons Rover without an orange alert. She just hits a button. 
Yeah. I hope for the sake of continuity, it's at least an orange button because, I mean, nothing means anything. Yep. Um, Chris, your opinion. He he gets winded here after a pretty short jog along the beach. Yes, it's tough to run in sand, but what, what, what's going on there? He's a spry 39-year-old Yeah, man. but again, we don't know how long he's he's been here. His food is drugged. His tea is drugged. Yeah, he's he's probably been deliberately weakened and deconditioned, so can't fault him for that. And isn't there an episode coming up where we see him doing a, a gymnastics workout? I, I seem to recall this. Yep. All which, reasons he should be able to run on this damn beach. Yeah, yeah. which is advanced. Yes. Um, so Rover leaves and Six decides to sleep on the beach, uh, take that authority, and he wakes the next morning to find a dead body has washed up. He finds a wallet on the body and a very cool-looking transistor radio. I really like this radio. Radically different from when he, he found the professor's tape recorder on the beach. I mean... <laughs> we're already yeah, echoing mean, in, a, in a way that I don't think is entirely deliberate. Yeah, I mean, that was the size of a red box. This is a perfect little, like, uh, state-of-the-art, I think, 1967-size transistor radio. Yep. The next morning, we see Aubrey Morris, the great Aubrey Morris, as the town crier. His line readings are very much his own, no matter, no matter where it turns up. Whether it's a Clockwork Orange or Listomania or Bordello of Blood or uh, Three count them three episodes of danger man which is probably why he ended up here oh man is uh, bordello of blood is that a is that a roger corman or is that a, a vincent price thing don't I'm, believe i think it's that, a 70s film actually yeah i don't think it's, I don't think it's he ended up on a Columbo right, but, but, it, but it could be it could be a 70s roger corman or it could I be a 70s vincent price these things are I, not mutually exclusive i think it's i don't know i, I honestly don't am know. i thinking of theater of blood you are thinking of theater of i blood think we watched of, theater of blood one halloween that's yeah, the one that diana rig is in yes you're thinking of theater of blood if you think of the vincent price thing because that's right. definitely okay. uh, yeah all right three episodes of danger man a Columbo or two a deadwood so he's, you know, he wow. crossed the pond. So and he, yeah, he had longevity. And an episode of It's Always Sunny, as a matter of fact. Get so, out of here, really. Yep. Wow. This is like the, God, I'm going to mangle her name, but the, the woman who was the taxi driver and the flower girl who was then on Fresh Off the Boat. Yep, yep. <laughs> for the entirety of its run. Yep, yep, yep. Long careers. It's great. It's great to see. Exactly. And Aubrey Morris is one of those actors who, when he says the word hear, as in like to listen, he pronounces the every letter of that word. He says, yeah, as opposed to here. Yeah, me, yeah, me. Like, so what I love about this scene is the notion of enforced merriment. You will be singing, dancing, happiness by order at the carnival, we are told. So the crowd is delightfully attired and uh, the music is, you know, the oompa of cheeriness, uh, but their faces are impassive and they are listlessly going around in yeah. circles. It's a it's a nice effect. The the uh, thing that must be triggering for you, Chris, is that many of them are rapidly spinning their umbrellas at eye height to a person like you. I, yep. I, I was, yep. How did you get through that scene, Chris? Well, I, I was... some of them are wearing uh, checkerboard pattern glasses. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Which I I assume is to protect themselves from the the hypnotic effect of the spinning umbrellas. Yes, listeners might not know of your lifelong antipathy toward the umbrella as. A thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I am one of the rare specimens of, of humanity who was born with skin that is, in fact, impervious to water. Glenn, <laughs> I can expose myself to water daily for purposes of hygiene, for purposes of recreation, and, and I, I suffer no ill effects. It's, it's astonishing. Yes, but if you're wearing, say, clothes and you're walking out in the rain, 
and your clothes get wet, and then you have to go uh-huh. and sit in an office uh-huh. and spend the first four hours squishing mm-hmm. in your little mm-hmm. chair and squishing in your shoes. That we can we can agree is unpleasant. Sure, sure. Okay. Number six. I just I just think if you happen to <laughs> if you arm yourself with an umbrella, you you are not exempt from the social contract. The fact that you can no longer see people around you does not give you license to gouge out their eyes with your fucking golf tent that you're you're carrying around so that your hair doesn't get messed up, Glenn. Okay. Well, I guess that's not why you're carrying up no, the golf umbrella. Not, but not, that, not. That, that, all right. Listeners, I was hoping this would happen. I was hoping we would get, <laughs> have him go off on a rant here, Chicha, uh-huh. but uh-huh. Uh, but he did. And that's uh, this is, now you know, a, a fraction of what my life is like. That's, that's right, listeners. If you want to be the SUV driver of the sidewalk, then get yourself a, a golf umbrella. So it's golf umbrellas alone. It's not umbrellas per se. I, I always thought it was. I thought it was just anti-umbrella. Everybody should wear a raincoat or nothing. I just think it's a bad idea to deprive yourself of peripheral vision when you're out there on the mean streets. Right. I think you're placing yourself at a at risk. Okay. All right. So it's about personal safety. It's not just because it pisses you off. So it's more because it pisses me off. Yeah, I was gonna say. And because I like my eyes, and because my my eyes my eyes don't towel off quite as uh, quickly as your your hair. Right? Uh-huh. Well, well, not your hair. I was gonna but, say hair, uh, hair as an abstract concept. Yes. Right. All right. So number six is costume for the carnival turns out to be his own tux from home. Uh, he tries listening to the transistor radio and is observed doing so mm. by two and by Doctor Forty. And then we get the best line of the episode. Best line, one of the best lines of the series actually, which is he is an individual, and they're always trying. Ah, see, double meaning, yeah. double meaning right, right there. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a good piece of business, solid piece of business right there. We learn that uh, Forty is torturing Dutton, who has uh, gone ahead and given up a lot of deets, as the kids say. Uh, right. But he needs to go further. Uh, and this is the scene where Two is like, "Yeah, sure. I mean, like, he's expendable. Go on with your bad self. Let your freak flag yeah. fly. You know, go crazy with the cheese whiz." Is, is this care. is this after uh, Dutton and Six have had their conversation no, on the, the beach? But mm-hmm. it, it's wait the the conversation with Doctor Forty and Two about how Dutton is expendable. Yes, Does that come before or after he, the? Right, and that's why they say I need to go further. Yeah, it comes before okay. the meeting of Six and uh, Dutton. Because this, for me, I mean, in, in an episode that, that has a lot of haunting scenes and, and images that, again, as with so many episodes of the series, are, are largely disconnected from one another in, in true dream logic fashion, the thing that, that lands with me the most emotionally is Alan White's performance as Dutton. Australian actor, did a lot of British TV in this period, don't know much else about him, but Dutton's knowledge that he is going to suffer a horrible death uh, it will not be quick or painless, that his mind will be liquefied, winnowed, reduced before he is allowed to die. He knows this and his his fear of that, the way he carries that when he's speaking to Six. I told him. What? Everything I know. The irony of it is they don't believe me. You know I didn't have access to the vital stuff. Yes. They'll take me back to the hospital. And by the time they realize I'm telling the truth, it'll be too late. When? They've released me for 72 hours so that I can reconsider in the peaceful atmosphere of the... of the village. Still hope? No, my friend. Not for me. Such noble thoughts along there. 
genuinely haunting. It doesn't have the theatrical quality that that I enjoy in so many of the performances. Even though he's wearing a ridiculous costume yeah. in this scene, he's got the striped sweater. He's basically dressed as Ernie, and he's just looking for a That's bird. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not for me, old sport. They're going to torture me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hello, old buddy bird. I'm going to get a lobotomy. <laughs> there is an interesting thing there because because uh, in that scene, which is coming up, Roland Walter Dutton not only accepts the fact that the prisoner calls him Roland Walter Dutton, but he refers to himself as Roland Walter Dutton will cease to exist, which could be intimating his actual physical death, or could be me, he could be talking about psychic death there. Like he might mm-hmm. he might have been so plugged into the. Yeah. Techniques that the village is, is employing on uh-huh. him that he knows exactly what's going to go on. When you refer to yourself in the third person, do See, you do it given your your full name? I don't ever refer to oneself, myself, as a, yeah. in the third person, and it might be a sign of psychic death that he is. I mean, you know, it might be a, a, a warning sign that he's about to turn the corner. I'm not sure that I know your middle name, Glenn. It's uh, should I say it on this? Because it's, well, isn't that like some kind of <laughs> security thing? It's Tiberius, everyone. It's Glenn, Tiber- Glenn James, Tiberius James, Weldon. James Tiberius Kirk. Uh, so Six finds this very pretty remote overlook, which I think we'll come back to uh, at another time, and again attempts to listen to the radio. This time he hears what, until I was this many years old, I figured was a coded message from some uh, force inside the village, which means that there's this kind of underground that is tr- plotting to overthrow the yada, 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 uh, and it includes the line, we must grasp the nettle even if it makes our hands bleed. And when I saw this when I was 16 years old in the reruns, I was like, what's a nettle? How's a nettle? And why would you grasp yep. it? Um, but I couldn't just look it up. So for years, I yeah. just, just like it would always, I'd go to think about it. So you went to Urban Dictionary and yeah. typed in grasp <laughs> yes. the nettle? Had to, uh, there was no Urban Dictionary. I had to uh, go to a library. I mean, it's, this is the thing. You wouldn't bother. A, a, like, a what? So many the... things, so many things you wouldn't bother with because, you know, the, the effort involved was not, equal to the payoff. He is caught red-handed by number two and his observer. Uh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. What does grasp the nettle mean? It just means, uh, like, a nettle is a, the, the, uh, a, a plant seize that Seize the has, day, shoot your shot? It's a plant that has very sharp spikes, so you must grasp the nettle. Uh, you must okay. h- hold on to it, because only through pain... Only through pain is will, the future guaranteed, right? Okay. tomorrow be assured, yes. All right, so it means suck it up. No pain, no gain. Yep. Exactly. That's the, the nettle. Grasp the nettle. And of course, um, this, this goes nowhere. No, of course not, because you know why? I was this many years old until I realized what I thought was a cryptic message, a coded message, was practice dictation. That's what he was listening to. He was listening to people reading out things so you could practice your dictation. So, of course, it doesn't mean anything, um, uh-huh. even though, I again, I thought there was this abandoned plot thread, but it ties up that plot thread wow. immediately as soon as he puts down the phone. Okay. Uh, he confronts his observer about being an observer, and, and she's like, basically, I'm just doing my job, man. Just, you know, so chill. I mean, like, what? Yeah. Um, Goody Go Bo Peep tells him he's a wicked man. Yeah, yep. Which, I mean, that's that's going for the jugular. She's uh, telling him what she thinks. We, we can talk about her performance in this episode. I'm not ever sure from scene to scene what she's giving us. Right. Particularly in the final scene, um, there's a stillness to her that I think is meant to, uh, to indicate that she has sympathized with him. But, ooh. Yeah. I, 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 there's an there's a affectlessness, which I think is a kind of undercutting. It, it sounds like there was intended to be more of a, a relationship However yeah. platonic between her and Six than I feel 
watching this episode. I don't feel like they have any kind of uh, chemistry. I believed the friendship between him and, and Allison and Schizoid Man. Yeah. I don't think these two have, uh, they're just, just rubbing two sticks together and uh, not, not getting any sparks. No, absolutely. And he waits to see uh, that she's left, and it's going to take her a while to get back to the Green Dome to uh, nip off down to the stone boat, steal a life preserver <laughs> and uh, a rope. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the stone boat is uh, fully safety rated. It would sustain a Coast Guard inspection because you, you can't have a permanently entrenched, beached boat made of fucking stone yeah, yeah, without yeah. enough life preservers for a full crew complement. I mean, this thing has a full crew complement, and there are people going up the rigging. For yep. what? Why? And they're, you know, adjusting the mainsail and yep. stowing the jib jab. I don't know what the hell they're doing. But I think that's a real, you know, decorative thing at, at Port Miriam. Like, I don't, I don't yep. think that was constructed for the show, but that fits with the, the endless parades. It's great. He is trying to be so cash, so cool, as he steals this life preserver and this rope. And somebody <laughs> stares at him as he's picking it up and walking off, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, I, I just got to... Uh, head up to the crow's nest. Uh, I, I can't be bothered with you, stranger, stealing our equipment. Um, he heads to the cave where he stored the bed, dead body, which is probably getting a little bit ripe by now, you have to imagine. It's not bloated mm. with water, so it must be pretty fresh. But mm. he then writes a note to whoever may find this. And it should be whomever, but we let that go. He's got other things uh, on his mind. All right. Grammar cop. Number 240 reports that number six has disappeared. She can't find him. She calls number two... On a yellow phone, number two answers on the red phone. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Near anarchy is loosed upon the damn world. She comments uh, that number six will turn up uh, and that he's very undisciplined, which, bitch, your telephone habits are all over the damn map. So let's, let's, let's before we throw a stone, it really bugs me. It's the red phone. She, anyway, yeah. it's, not, it's not the big curvy red phone that denotes number one, but it should, anyway. Right. He is disciplined. That's one thing that he is. Personable? No. Fun? <laughs> no. Great at parties? No. Yeah. <laughs> not not even at a dreamy party. party. Will not take sugar in his tea. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, discipline he's got. Discipline he's got. And fear of death. Uh, speaking of death, he replaces the dead guy's photo in his wallet with his own. It's that same... Yep. <laughs> that same Which I headshot. mean, if I really wanted people to think that I was worth rescuing, I would I would get that uh, fetching candid that Allison took sure. of him in his flat, where he's holding the cards in front of his face in mischievous fashion. That seems like a fun guy. Do you carry a photo of yourself? Would you have carried a photo of yourself around, <laughs> just 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 or have or just have it? It just doesn't seem like a weird thing that he would. <laughs> he launches the dead guy out to sea, tied to the life preserver. And when I say out to sea, I mean. A foot offshore. He kind of yep. takes him one right. foot offshore and just goes, boop, little push. Little tiny yes. boop, boop, push. But that's when he turns to see his old colleague, Roland Walter. Uh, standing in the cave mouth, uh, Roland Walter Dutton is also known as number 42. Right. This is the scene where he's so, so exactly. haunting and, and great. I was moved by this. Yes. There is a pathos to it, and it is uh, an act break. And then later... We see Six looking all every inch John Drake standing there in a tux uh, on the on the on the beach, looking out at the sea, getting his Gatsby on. Uh, number two approaches him dressed as, say it with me, Chris, Mister Peter Pan, uh, and they have a very fun exchange. She looks at him without blinking, 
she informs him. You're being hostile again. Which, fair cop, he is. Um, (laughs) And that moment seems to catch him ever so slightly off guard. He softens ever so slightly for a second here. If you insist on living a dream, you may be taken for mad. I like my dream. I like my dream. It's it's wistful from a guy who got no wist in him. He, he, yeah. he's, he is wist yeah. empty. But that is a very interesting uh, right. delivery. He then arrives at the completely joyless carnival, where people are standing around in their very colorful costumes um, without dancing, which is something that Mr. Peter Pan will uh, have none of. She will brook no, no dancing. And she says... Oh, no dancing. Tonight's for dancing, amongst other things. One thing I noticed immediately is that no one's wearing their number. They're all just wearing their costumes. So this could be, you know, they're allowed into the town hall once for this festival. They're allowed to be, to dress up. Maybe this is like Twelfth Night, where the the commoners are allowed to mouth off to the, the royals for one night of the year or something like that. Yep. It's interesting because they can be individuals as long as they're different people. (laughs) That seems like what they can be. The music starts up. uh, Number two offers six a drink, an alcoholic one, presumably. Another, you know, uh, we're going to hear a lot about the rules in this last act. And this is one of those rules that apparently can get broken at Carnival uh, in the village because they're not allowed alcoholic drinks. He uh, says that he rarely drinks. And she says, self-denial is a great sweetener of pleasure which is, I knew there was something Calvinist about the village. I knew there was something I, I kind of liked about it. Um, the uh, There's more back and forth about democracy, blah, 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 blah. They talk wine vintages. Uh, she tries to convince him to dance right. with his observer. Um, and then, two offers Dr. Forty a drink. And what does he say, Chris? Do you remember this line? Oh, I don't. I don't. Drink is too leveling. How is he? Too leveling. Well, that's a whole yeah, point. right. Okay, yeah. That's the right. point of that's the, is to get leveled. <laughs> um, yeah. What what does that mean? It just means leveled? it uh, it uh, removes any barriers and it just makes you you know level <laughs> with everybody else. Okay. Yes. All right. All or right. it could just mean you know you, you flatten your back. Um, still, yet again, she assures him that six will be one over. That he's too important, etc., etc., etc. Again, coming as it is in the eighth episode, it's like we get it, we know. But if it came in the second episode, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Right. Um, he is hostile to his observer, as is his damnable want, um, especially when she tells him that the village has been around for a long time. A long time, yeah. And then we get it. How long? <laughs> we get the the McGowan punch here. This place has been going for a long time. Since the war. Before the war. Which war? A long time. Since the war. Before the war, which war? We get that, and it's it's yeah, I it's, know. That's, that's, it's it's worth waiting for. It's I, we're like minute thirty-eight <laughs> or something, but all that preamble seems worth it. It really does. Just knocks knocks the rating of this episode up one number because it's just just on that <laughs> which war. It's um, it's like uh-huh. the it's like the fight scenes in Batman. It's like what you're talking about, Willis, on different strokes. You wait for the punch. And it comes. Yeah. Uh, we see some very British people dancing around them, dancing very Britishly. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, when they do things like this, they don't actually do playback of the music because you can't, you don't want to miss the dialogue when they film a thing like this. So nobody knows what the hell they're dancing to, and it shows. Then, I guess, on Carnival, uh, they they slacken the security procedures in a big old way because Six just basically sneaks away uh, and grabs a lab coat. 
and walks down right. the hall. Right. Yeah. The woman who gets the the kill order uh-huh. for Dutton, <laughs> which, I mean, the village must be burning through toner cartridges, by the way, because so that is a black piece of paper. The very same note. Because, yeah. The village has an unlimited toner budget. Great minds, Chris. Yeah, just a name in white on black in Albertus. Yep. No No caps. No caps. The back of the paper is white. The front is colored black. Yeah. And and uh, that that woman who, by the way, is one of the judges from the art contest in oh, right. Times of Big Ben. Sure, sure, sure. The the one who thinks he understands what he's getting at oh. and could be the same character. She she could moonlight as a as a judge. Sure. Yeah, you would think that a termination order would be a, a high priority deliverable and not something you just hand to some dude you've never <laughs> seen before in the hallway. <laughs> it's very urgent. This person must be killed. As soon as possible, mm-hmm. please give this to the executioner if you happen to see him. Thank you. Yep. I mean, he's got glasses and a lab coat. I mean, that's, yep. that's right there. That's, that's all you need to do. So then after he realizes that Dutton is about to be killed, he goes through a series of doors that magically open for him in a way that all the other doors in the hallway did not. It's a kind of Mask of the Red Death sort of progression as he goes through office after office, a series of filing cabinets, uh, which he doesn't search. Like, he's finally behind the scenes of the bil- uh, of the village, and he just, just keeps walking through the next door, always the next door, finds a key, opens that door, in- and enters a morgue where he finds a body, well, he finds the body that he sent out to see that he pushed three inches offshore, and uh, two then shows up at the catch, which is just an excuse for some casual misogyny. She's taken to you. I'm jealous. Oh, she's mine. She works here, too. She's very efficient. Almost ruthless. Never trust a woman. Even the four-legged variety. Boo. Not cool, Six. Not cool. Let's power through this. He finds out that they're going to amend the body so it will seem like it was Six who died at sea. Again, parking lot, this should have happened in week two, if not week one. But there you are. They go back to the grim, silent, but quite colorful carnival. He finds out that with respect, uh, will there be a cabaret? There is. You are it. It is a nice little delivery there. Um, he asks what his crime is because he's being put on trial. Three judges, as in the French Revolution. She says they got through the Deadwood, didn't they? And she's not wrong. Uh, two will defend him. His observer will prosecute. The judges are his maid, Dr. Forty, and the town crier, dressed as Queen Elizabeth I, Napoleon, and Julius Caesar, respectively. What he's accused of, of course, is uh, being in possession of, as good old Aubrey Morris will say it, Ah, there you sit! His observer calls for the severest possible sentence. Again, this performance here is kind of affectless and unreadable. I think she's trying to convey conflict. She doesn't quite succeed in doing that. I'm not sure how she's being directed here. You said it was an, an actor, who, a woman who had worked on Dance of the Dead, who had asked McGowan the origin of the be seeing you hand mm-hmm. sign. Was that Norma West? That was remember? her, yeah. She okay. said that he, she, he struck him as a very religious man, but also, at this point, a very harried person who was seemed exhausted because it was all on him. Yeah. So they must have spent some time chilling uh, because he seemed to talk to her a lot or confide in her a lot. And none of that uh, rapport... Translated on screen. <laughs> Not an iota, no. His defender number two uh, asks for clemency, saying he is an individual, a human being, which the entire part of the village is to deny that these people are individuals. So, you know, again, 
parking lot. She is throwing him a lot of bones, more bones than number two, other number twos have by calling him. He is a wild spirit that will quieten and he will become a model citizen. And then the judges begin to deliberate. And there's a nice moment where they lean in to the three of them to deliberate. And obviously the script just said rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. They're supposed to, you know, just kind of do that. And you just see Aubrey Morris go, what do you think? <laughs> you can just hear him say it. <laughs> Six tries to call a witness, a character witness, uh, yeah. Roland Walter Dutton. Um, Six says, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Can I get, can a, I get witness? a witness? Six says that since Dutton is scheduled to be killed, he's better suited to say the things that need to be said, which, what? All of a sudden, Six is the shy and retiring coy person who doesn't say what's on his mind? What? What is yeah. that? What? What? Right. This is where things start to go feathery. This is where mm-hmm. we, we are crossing over into what you, meant, what you mentioned before, is from story logic into dream logic. Two goes and retrieves Dutton. He's dressed as a court jester. He's yeah. obviously had some work done, but not <laughs> not the housewives yep. kind of work, a different kind of work. Is he drooling? Am I am I just imagining that in this scene? I mean, his, his mouth is hanging slightly agape. Yep. Clearly the, the butchers have done their work. Right. And so I'm not sure if... He still will get terminated, but the order just came down. And this must have happened before that, so it seems kind of overkill, if you ask me. But mm-hmm. yeah, the judgment comes down uh, death, and the people are to carry it out, which means that as he walks slowly away and then starts breaking into a run, that the crowd of colorful jesters and clowns and Napoleons and everybody screams this ungodly scream and start chasing him as if in a nightmare we have crossed over into a, yeah. a different kind of show yep I will never not love it when when a person confronted with a mob just waits and waits and waits and then makes the decision to start running and they wait a respectful few seconds before giving chase <laughs> it's very English according to Hoyle he goes down a trap door, and then he comes up again and makes it into a room where we saw number two entering to make her report. It's a very well-appointed room. Yeah. It's got this... The trap door he found very easily. I, maybe he found it when he was doing his little lab coat recon before well, intercepting death orders. Yes, when he, he, he did step across it. I mean, it's very clearly evident in that scene when he finds the body. It's right there. And it was so evident that obviously it had to do something. It, it couldn't just be you know, on the floor, because that you'd think, well, shouldn't the set dresser have fixed that or something like that? But no, it's um, it's there for a reason. So this room has a printer behind a screen, a big old dot matrix, ink, yep. ink, yep. ink, ink printer. And he attacks the printer for reasons. Those dot matrix printers were very annoying and, and loud. Yes. Not pleasant and nostalgic in the manner of a, of a mechanical typewriter with the little, the little bell. Sure. Every time you reach yep. the end of a line much more grating sound, so can't blame him for that. Yes, of the many things this show has influenced, I now realize, just sitting here, that it obviously influenced uh, office space, where people just destroy a printer (laughs) in much the same way that he does. Yep. Um, We see the villagers milling about in the hallway. Uh, He can see out, but they can't see in. Get it, Chris? They'll never, they've never seen in here, and they never will, number two informs him. Yeah. Because they lack six's initiative. Again, buttering up. Buttering six up is a major tactic of many, many number twos on this show. Uh, she dispatches his observer to deal with them. What does that mean exactly? Because in practice, it means usher them out of the hallway. Yeah. But does she also inform them that, oh, by the way, the whole death thing, the death order, the, we're killing six. That's done. No, we're not. Just kidding. Ha, uh, carnival. 
because otherwise he's still under the threat of death and, yep. and, and nobody should be saying yeah. he's seen it. He's saying you to him. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking at the final page of the teleplay of this, this episode from librarian Tony Sloman's collection. And it does look like there's just some, some stuff missing. Um, one of these writers had alluded to a, a, a scene between um, the Observer number 240, Bo Peep, mm-hmm. Z240. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that McGowan didn't, didn't want to shoot. Big, big surprise, suggesting, again, not, not even any kind of a romantic relationship, but just a, an emotional linkage of some kind. There's the exchange where number two tells six. It's a one-way mirror. They can't see you. They've never seen him here. They never will. They lack your initiative. And then in the episode, he just attacks the printer, right? And it springs back to life. Uh, he had attacked uh, the printer uh, when uh, they walked in on him attacking the printer. And right. it springs back to life. Um, uh, now, is the printer supposed to be the means by which she communicates with number one, who we have established is not there? Like, he can't yeah, show it, up it, to it the is, It is treated with the import of the general. Yes. This dumb little machine that just sits on an end table. It doesn't fill an entire room. It doesn't have a, its own access ramp. It doesn't have its own curtain. Yeah. It doesn't have its own anteroom with a professor in a smoking jacket sitting outside typing instructions <laughs> that will be then translated into long punch cards. It's treated like it's some critical device, some MacGuffin that uh, registers as important to him. Because it's uh, the cogs, man. It's the, the machine that grinds up the workers, yeah. right? And and it's always yeah. gonna it's always gonna work, no matter uh, even if you try to destroy it. It's uh, it's transcends like the now, man. It's this is this is I this is where we pivot from story logic to dream logic, from plot to symbol symbolism, and this is also yeah. where uh, things start to get a little. There, there's a line here on the, the final page of the, the teleplay where P says to number two, a man can only die once. No, sorry, this is number two saying, a man can only die once, and you're already dead, aren't you, in our little room? Uh-huh. Prisoner says, you won't win with me, I'll never give in. That that survives in the episode. But uh, And okay, then she says, two. how very uncomfortable for you, old chap. Right. Ha, 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 ha. And that's, that's the end, right? Yep. Okay, because here in the script, after number two says, how very uncomfortable for you, old chap, P replies, but rewarding, old chap. Being dead does have its advantages. Then he smashes the machine and says, shall we dance? Huh. Then we leave the room, and then there's uh, a scene of the, the crowd dancing again. So we have six verbally accepting that the world will mark him as... Uh, KIA mm-hmm. or MIA. So once again, in this documentary that I refer to all the time, Don't Knock Yourself Out, which is on the, the Prisoner Blu-ray set, uh, editor John S. Smith explains that months later, months after Dance of the Dead had been shot and had fallen out of favor with McGowan, he told McGowan that he had looked at the dailies. He thought the footage looked great. And McGowan kind of said, yeah, okay, well, see what you can do with it. And what Smith found out was that not all of it had been shot. There was a concluding scene. There is a bit more of an exchange between the Mary Morris number two and between six, where six tries to reclaim some power and says, well, there's, there are some advantages in, in being dead. And then he goes back out to dance with his observer. There, there's a bit of dialogue that was never shot where number two tells him that number 249, whatever she is, little Bo Beep, is no longer his observer. 
and mm-hmm. places his hand in hers and sends them out to dance together. And then there's a big group shot of uh, the carnival continuing. And at least the way it's described in the teleplay, everyone appears to be having a good time. Mm-hmm. Now, in, uh, I think it's the... One of these books explains that that uh, <laughs> McGowan just refused to shoot that. He didn't want even the hint of, of any kind of a relationship between him and his observer. And apparently his refusal to shoot this as scripted was one of the things that contributed to his growing rift with Don Chafee, who directed Arrival, directed Checkmate, directed a number of episodes, and departed before the first season was done. He had just had enough of McGowan's unannounced script changes and and Mm -hmm. so on. So uh, John S. Smith says that he basically had to salvage the episode from what was available and and kind of manufacture an ending from what footage they had. So that explains why what we see differs from what's on the page. And I think it's hard to argue that uh, what we got was, was better than what was written. No, it's true. It's true. And and kudos to him because he did manage to salvage it to the extent he did without reverting to ADR or a, a lot of like clearly yeah. fake, you know, falsely inserted things. It does. It, it does end. <laughs> it just doesn't mm-hmm. end in a way that is any way narratively satisfying. Yeah. That is a deficiency that will recur. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the idea of ending on the printer turning on again and then you get village head zoom slam credits. It's definitive in a way. It is. It, you, there's only one way to interpret it, which is major loss suffered by six, as opposed to the other ending, which it would be less, I guess, despondent <laughs> than this yeah. ending seems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, this ending does not spring like a steel trap. It sort of just dissolves, and that's it. Uh, it colors everything because I really love what Mary Morris is bringing, especially as. She is one of the few number twos who is never permitted to crack. Yeah. None of the other functionaries, the subordinates of twos, other than the supervisor, Swanwick, who isn't really a character, right? I mean, we don't ever see him do anything except convey orders. Yep. But uh, like number 14, Sheila Allen, Dr. 40 in this, none, none of them recur either, right? Don't believe so, no. I like that. Yeah, and you know some of them. I think that I think this show really loves like number fourteen and number twelve, and like they just keep kind of keep cycling through. Yeah, like faster than they do the twos. It's like they couldn't imagine other numbers. Yes, I know. Do you have to be a real big brain to uh, think of what some other two and three digit numbers might be? Yeah, I'm sure somebody has already said all the numbers we've seen on screen, and I'm sure there's a big gaping hole in like the seventies. I don't think we see too many seventies. Yeah, there's a numerology key to all of this i can see this airing forth even though you know chime is a big ben it's clear that uh, that takes place over the course of six weeks at least six weeks and then he has to go and get on the ship and then he has to like all that's yeah. a long time and that's not something you would say when it, whenever you arrive quite recently it's not you wouldn't say quite recently if, uh, if it's been two at least three months that's not quite recently but again this show resists any attempt to pin it to the specimen board uh, intentionally so so all I want to do is get out my pins and kill some butterflies, but uh, I can't. Nice extended metaphor. Mm-hmm. What are we doing next, Glenn? It looks like checkmate. I am not a not a chess player, so uh, I may be at a disadvantage here. I don't. I don't. I barely play chess. I barely play checkers. I don't. I don't know. Let me. Can we do that again? Sorry. 
So next we have Checkermate. And <laughs> I hardly know her mate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Checkmate, which isn't necessarily the next episode that was shown in Britain, but I think it was the one that was shown in the States. It's certainly what, if you get the Blu-ray, if you are watching on Amazon, it's yep. the next in, this, it's in the series. So this is beloved by many fans and uh, beloved by Patrick McGowan himself, certainly one of the core seven, and, you know, has a lot of very iconic imagery, if I remember. I'm looking forward to rewatching. Me too, Glenn. Well, I am going to spend the week until we meet again mastering chess. I will, uh, I will give myself a full seven days to do this. I think that's, mm-hmm. that sounds reasonable. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's not necessary, but I'm sure it'll enrich, enrich your viewing. Yes. Uh, you know, going to plug in my HAL 9000 and um, play, play, play. Well, until then, Glenn, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. And finally, I want to make a public promise to my podcasting partner, Glenn, that in my capacity as producer, I will give clearer direction. <laughs> I, I don't believe in such things myself, but... Um... You were supposed to be able to read each other's minds. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Okay, huh. we weren't really synced there, but uh, that doesn't matter. I can I can sync it in post as long as I have a post. nice, clear, visible line on my track and on your track. Then then we don't have to be perfectly. Synced. That's excellent. Good. Okay. Clapping on the one in the three, mm-hmm. no, no problem. It's what I do. It's what my people do. Glenn, Chris, Aubrey Morris's character uh-huh. in this episode, Dance of the Dead. I already fucked up. <laughs> no, everything Glenn, you said was right. <laughs> <laughs> he got an enigmatic look on his face, and all he said. that my fucking script isn't here <laughs> jesus it, it, it's all gone because i had to restart my computer <laughs> i thought oh man i thought you were emoting truly... i thought you were getting some of your london training in there yeah, i thought uh-huh. you were right <laughs>